0: Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 30, Deuteronomy, chapter 23. Well, Deuteronomy, chapter 22, took the concept of adultery to, to a whole new level. And it explains in the motif of illicit mixtures just what God means by adultery. Now, what we tend to think of adultery in purely sexual terms, in reality, to commit adultery is to take anything that's pure or, or clean or it's in its proper or pristine form and to contaminate it with something that corrupts it. It's a correct use of the term, adulterate, to describe, for instance, fresh water being contaminated with seawater thereby making the resultant mixture either unsuitable or, or less than desirable for satisfying thirst, which was its original intent and purpose. So adultery, while used most often to describe the crime of one partner in a marriage relationship breaking faith by having a sexual relationship with another person who's not their spouse, it is in fact the forbidden union of any two things, or maybe even more, I suppose, that the Lord says aren't to be mixed together. It can be in the sexual sexual sphere, but it can be in the work sphere, an ox and a donkey yoked to the same plow. In the food sphere, eating unclean animals. The plant sphere, two different kinds of seeds planted in the same space. The clothing sphere, a garment of shanets linen and wool woven together, and there's others. And we've seen in the Torah that the Lord has given us many examples of unions that He says ought not be formed. Sometimes we we really can't readily see His rationale for choosing those two components of the forbidden mix. And in fact, other than for a Tangible illustration of a higher God principle, there may not even be any other reason for his choices that will ever be able to discern this side of heaven. More often than not, the unauthorized union of two things, now catch this, is not about mixing a good thing with a bad thing. In the example of weaving wool and linen together into a cloth, there's nothing bad or evil with linen as a cloth or with wool as a cloth. One kind of thread is not inferior or less acceptable to God than the other when it comes to planting two different kinds of seeds together. It's not that one kind of seed is a good seed producing good food and the other kind is a bad seed producing bad food. Both seeds are perfectly acceptable and each produce their own kind of good food. When it comes to human sexuality and the prohibition of intimate relations between two males or two females, it's not that a male is inferior or superior to a female. Each is perfectly acceptable to God. The issue is that only proper use and union of God's creatures, uh, creations for the intent and purpose that He created them is authorized. And that's it. And since the Creator obviously knows the purpose of each of His creations and how He carefully designed each to fit together perfectly in His universe, it's not our job, it's not our right to challenge or to judge His divine rationale but simply to discover and follow the plan and patterns as He created them. That's our job. Now most certainly these laws on illicit mixtures were to be taken literally. And they were to be obeyed by Israel. Equally as certainly, the mechanical following of these ordinances without trusting the Lord without comprehending the overriding spiritual principles, they are demonstrating this is the whole point. And the point is that from the heavenly down to the earthly, from the spiritual down to the physical, from the unseen dimensions beyond our ability to even sense them, down to the familiar four dimensions that comprise the universe that we operate in, the Lord created everything in a precise divine order and with perfect harmony. To use something in a manner that is not consistent with His order of things is perverse and it's chaotic. To take something meant for one purpose in His order and to fuse it together with something that has an entirely different purpose in His order, the Lord calls adultery. So adultery has a far wider and deeper spiritual meaning than to have sexual relations outside of one's marriage commitment. So at the outset of chapter 23 now, we will study the particular sphere of forbidden mixture that might be entitled, if we were to give it a title, Forbidden Relationships. Let's read Deuteronomy chapter uh, 23. But before we do, just know something. Your Bible version, if it's not a complete Jewish Bible or perhaps one written by the Jewish publication society, might have a very slightly slightly modified order of the verses or numbering of the verses rather. Um, most English Bibles have that the first chapter of uh, first verse of chapter twenty three that I'm going to be reading to you from the complete Jewish Bible places the last verse of chapter 22. So if you're not reading long with me in the in a complete Jewish Bible, just start at the final verse of chapter 22 and we'll, we'll be together. And this is simply the result, by the way, of a difference of opinion between Christian and Jewish scholars as to where to put an end to one chapter and start the next. All right, Which was actually arbitrary anyway because there were no such things. as chapters and verse markers in the original. So let's read Deuteronomy chapter 23, all of it together. Page 222, if you have a complete Jewish Bible. A man is not to take his father's wife, thus violating his father's rights. A man with crushed or damaged private parts may not enter the assembly of Adonai. A mamzer may not enter the assembly of Adonai, nor may his descendants down to the tenth generation enter the assembly of Adonai. No Ammoni or Mo, or, in other words, Ammonite, alright, or, uh, uh, Moavi, Moabite, alright, may enter the assembly of Adonai, nor may any of his descendants down to the tenth generation ever enter the assembly of Adonai, because they did not supply you with food and water when you were on the road after leaving Egypt, and because they hired Bilam. The son of Bior from Pator, and Aram Naharayim to put a curse on you. But Adonai your God would not listen to Bilam, rather Adonai your God turned the curse into a blessing for you, because Adonai your God loved you. So you are never to seek their peace or well being as long as you live. But you are not to detest an Edomian Edomite, because he's your brother. And you are not to detest an Egyptian because you lived as a foreigner in his land. The third generation of children born to them may enter the assembly of Adonai. When you are in camp at war with your enemies, you are to guard yourself against anything bad. If there's a man among you who is unclean because of a nocturnal omission, he's to go outside the camp. He's not to enter the camp. When evening arrives, he's to bathe himself in water and after sunset, he may enter the camp. Also, you are to have an area outside the camp to use as a latrine. You must include a trowel with your equipment. And when you relieve yourself, dig a hole first. In other words, cover it up. Adonai, your God, moves about in your camp to rescue you and to hand over your enemies to you. Therefore, your camp must be a holy place. Adonai should not see anything indecent among you, or he'll turn away from you. If a slave has escaped from his master and taken refuge with you, you are not to hand him back to his master. Allow him to stay with you, in whichever place suits him best among your settlements. Do not mistreat him. No woman of Israel is to engage in ritual prostitution. No man of Israel is to engage in ritual homosexual prostitution. Nothing earned through heterosexual or homosexual prostitution is to be brought into the house of Adonai your God in fulfillment of any vow, for both of these are aberrant to Adonai your God. You're not to lend at interest to your brother, no matter whether the loan is money, food, anything else that can earn interest. To an outsider you may lend at interest, but to your brother you're not to lend at interest, so that Adonai your God will prosper you in everything you set out to do in the land you are entering in order to take possession of it. When you make a vow to Adonai your God, you're not to delay in fulfilling it. For Adonai your God will certainly demand it of you. And your failure to do so will be your sin. If you choose not to make a vow at all, that will not be a sin for you. But if a vow passes your lips, you must take care to perform it according to what you voluntarily vowed to Adonai your God. What you promised in words spoken aloud. When you enter your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat enough grapes to satisfy your appetite, but you're not to put any in your basket. When you enter your neighbor's field of growing grain, you may pluck ears with your hand, but you're not to put a sickle to your neighbor's grain. The first nine verses of what we just read... Is part of a series of seven laws that actually start in the last chapter. That is a commentary by Moses on the seventh commandment, which is the prohibition against adultery. Now, the first five laws of this seven-law series were in chapter twenty-two. The, the the one contained in the first verse of. Chapter 23 is therefore the sixth of the series. The sixth law on the topic of adultery is that a son is not to marry his father's former wife. Now I'm not sure how to get this important message across to you. Moses, or better God through Moses, is not creating new law in Deuteronomy apart from what was pronounced in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. Moses, the mediator, was neither adding to the law, nor was he replacing the old with the new. He was explaining the applications and the contexts and the nuances of what these laws and their underlying principles meant and how the Father expected them to be carried out in practicality an imminent change in Israel's physical circumstance from being wanderers now to becoming settled in Canaan would mean that the details in how they carried out the law would necessarily be somewhat different in some instances. Now this is a critical principle for us to apprehend because the challenge that we constantly face is how do we apply the ancient law to our contemporary circumstances and our modern cultures without essentially trying to go back in time and live in a primitive manner. Now Yeshua addressed essentially the same kind of challenge regarding the law during his sermon on the mount. Now I stress this again and again. Because the fact is that around four centuries after Messiah's execution, a new and erroneous doctrine began to to, to dominate within the church. A doctrine that Christ was giving us new laws to replace the old laws. When he spoke his famous sermon, as recorded in Matthew 5, there on that, that beautiful natural amphitheater, overlooking the blue waters of the Sea of the Galilee. see, Messiah addressed the situation as it currently existed, over and against what had always been intended and what it was about to become. Okay? He addressed the corrupted state of the doctrines of Judaism, over and against the true religion, that had always been intended and expected by the Lord. In a very real sense of the word, Jesus was making profound commentary on the Torah when he was giving his Sermon on the Mount. He wasn't changing the founding principles upon which the Torah and the Old Testament stood. Now probably your Bible doesn't read just like the Complete Jewish Bible does in Deuteronomy verse twenty-three, verse one. Likely your Bible says something like, "A man shall not take his father's wife, so that he shall not uncover his father's skirt." And if you've got a complete, rather a a, a King James or something, you're gonna you're gonna read that, and that is there, by the way. Right? Uncover his father's skirt. Well, what does that mean? See, that's why the complete Jewish Bible and several others, by the way, will make this opening verse read what they think it means rather than what it says word for word. Okay. First understand that in biblical language and in, and in this current context, to take a woman <coughs> means to take a woman in marriage. Okay. Remember, in God's economy, the act of sexual relations between a man and a woman is marriage. Now we're going to deal with that a little bit more in a few minutes. So here's what's happening in this first verse. This is not speaking of a son marrying or having sexual relations with his mother. That would be incest. And there are other laws as well that deal with that. It's also not speaking of a son having sex with his father's current wife, in other words, a son's stepmother, because that too is covered by other laws and it would have been unthinkable in pretty much every Middle Eastern culture there. What this is about is a son having a sexual relationship with his former stepmother who is not currently married to his father. And it also covers the matters of concubines who are currently in the father's household or concubines that belong to his now deceased father. Now, while it may not seem so on the surface, this law has much to do with the laws of inheritance. Because several of the world's known cultures of that era traditionally passed along the wives and the concubines of the deceased father as though they were some kind of possession to the inheriting son so in a situation like that a man's stepmother literally did become his wife right and his father's concubines now formed his harem And all the usual sexual rights that went with those relationships were included. The Lord says that that while the Gentile world customarily does that, you're not going to do it in Israel. It's forbidden. There is another similar custom of that era that is also being addressed and it shows up back in Genesis in the story of Reuben taking one of his father's Jacobs concubines and the custom is that if a man intends on usurping the throne whether it's of a of a kingship or of a tribal leader or maybe he's trying to take over his own clan or anything like that he shows his power and authority by having sexual relations with the current or former leaders wives and concubines now i mentioned a couple of weeks ago the implicit Sexual reference is behind so much of what goes on in the Bible, but it's generally hidden from our modern view due to Bible translations that mm, tend to sanitize things a little bit in order not to offend us. Well, this is another one of those examples. Let's quickly read that story of Reuben and the result so we understand what's happening here. Turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 35. Genesis chapter 35. And we're going to read Genesis thirty five, nineteen through twenty three. Oh, I got the wrong thing here. Is it thirty five? Where is it? I'm missing. I can't find it. 20, start, with start with 20. Okay, here it is. Yeah, just a couple of verses too early. Sorry. Right, well, let's go ahead and start with 19. I apologize. So, Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is, Beit Lechem. And Jacob set up a standing stone on her grave. It's the standing stone of Rachel's grave to this day. Israel continued his travels, Israel meaning Jacob. And he pitched his tent on the other side of Migdal Eder. And it was while Israel was living in that land that Reuben went and slept with Bilah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard about it. Now we get several pieces of information in this passage. Rachel died. Jacob was on the move, camping near Migdol Eder. Reuben was Jacob's firstborn son. Bilah was one of Jacob's concubines. As a matter of fact, she had produced a number of sons for Jacob and she also served as a servant to the now deceased Rachel. Reuben had sex with Bilah and Jacob found out about it. Now, was this incident a minor family issue or was it a major problem? Let's turn to Genesis 49 and we're going to find out. We're going to read verses 1 through 4. Genesis 49. We're going to read verses 1 through 4. Then Jacob called for his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, and I will tell you what will happen to you in the Aharit Hayamim, the world to come. Assemble yourselves and listen, sons of Jacob. Pay attention to Israel, your father. Reuben you are my firstborn my strength the first fruits of my manhood those superior in vigor and power you are as unstable as water so your superiority will end because you climbed into your father's bed and defiled it he climbed onto my concubine's couch here we see that there was indeed a consequence a very serious consequence for Reuben having sexual relations with Bilah. The facts are, Jacob was on his deathbed. It was time for him to pronounce the blessing upon his sons, which essentially means to read the will. Upon his death, the terms of the blessings of the will, the divvying up of the property and all the power, take place. Reuben acknowledged as Jacob's firstborn son, is not going to receive what ought to be rightfully given to the firstborn because he had sexual relations with his father's concubine, Bilah. Now by having that relationship with Bilah, Reuben was symbolically demonstrating that he was taking over all that belonged to his father Jacob. He was usurping Jacob's leadership. This wasn't some vague or impulsive act with a subtle psychological meaning. This is how things were done in the Middle East. Everyone understood that there was really no difference between this act and Reuben literally marching an army against his father or maybe even attempting to assassinate him. It appears that in this case... Jacob decided not to immediately and openly confront Reuben. Rather, he chose to kind of let things play out and then at the right moment punish Reuben in the most humiliating and far-reaching manner. Reuben would be denied the birthright that he naturally had figured for himself to become the leader of the rapidly growing nation of Israel, This law of Deuteronomy, verse 1, simply takes the formerly unwritten law that God had impressed upon humanity in the most ancient of times as demonstrated in the Reuben affair, and he codified it. Now let's talk about the original wording of this verse a little bit because there's an important Hebrew idiom in it that's going to be helpful for us to recognize throughout the Old Testament especially. That idiom is at the end of the verse where it says that a son shall not uncover his father's skirt. If you've got a Bible that reads that way. And it ought to read that way. Now please follow along with me closely because I'm going to give you an insight into the minds of the biblical Hebrews and and also how this pertains to marriage. Now first of all, We'll see variations on this theme in a number of places in the Bible. Phrases such as uncovering nakedness or seeing someone's nakedness do not mean something like a boy running into the girl's shower room at an opportune moment and getting an eyeful. Okay. It's an idiom that means having sexual relations. Okay. Second, an idiomatic Hebrew symbolism, a man's wife is his garment. A man's wife is his garment. In thinking and in speech, in that era, a man's wife was thought of and referred to as his, as his clothing or covering or skirt a standard men's garment in that day. This is by no means a demeaning reference to the wife. Rather, it is the concept that a man's wife is so important and valuable and close to him that he wears her like a garment. She is a kind of covering for for him. Therefore, for this son to remove his father's garment... Is to steal what's closest and most meaningful to his father. His father's wives, concubines. And then to clothe himself in them. He's taking what, that which is meant exclusively for the father within the unity of marriage. The sexual relationship with his wives and concubines. And as he's illegally partaking in it. It's a forbidden mixture. It's an illicit union that the Son is seeking to form. Now, conversely, just as to uncover nakedness, to remove a garment, means to have sex, to cover over with a garment, means to betroth and then marry. Now we see this exact scenario with Messiah's ancestor, Ruth. Okay, turn your Bibles to Ruth 3. Ruth chapter 3. Ruth chapter 3. We're gonna read verses just 6 through 9. Ruth chapter 3 verse 6. She went down to the threshing floor, did everything as her mother-in-law had instructed her, and after Boaz was through eating and drinking, and he was feeling good, he went to lie down at the end of a pile of grain, and she stole in and uncovered his feet and lay down. In the middle of the night, the man was startled, and he turned over, and there, there was a woman lying at his feet, and he asked, Who are you? And she answered, I'm your handmaid, Ruth. Spread your robe over your handmaid, because you are my my redeeming kinsman. So the act of Ruth saying to Boaz, cover over me with your skirt or garment or robe, means betroth me in marriage. Okay? Now this is a great illustration of why we have so many biblical translation problems that result in understanding problems. Most Gentile Christian Bible translators were excellent scholars of the Hebrew and or Greek languages, but they knew nothing of Hebrew culture. In many cases, Martin Luther, for instance, they intentionally avoided knowing about it. So anti-Jewish were their mindsets. The result was that they didn't understand the Hebrew mind, or the, or just the common Hebrew idioms, or the symbolic and customary nature of many things that, that, that go on in the Holy Scriptures that seem straightforward to most folks, yet for Hebrews, they're anything but straightforward. Now, as I told you a while back, the symbolic use of scriptural vocabulary that revolves around clothing, sex and marriage, Holy War, this is central to the Bible. Central to understanding. It's it's woven and interspersed throughout. And we miss it at our own peril. Because so often it is this vocabulary that describes Yehovah's desired relationship with us. And then what our response is to be back towards Him. Okay, back to Deuteronomy. One of the things this law in verse 1 does is that it turns on its head an everyday universally recognized cultural understanding of that time. God says that while everybody else in the world, Gentiles, passes their wives and concubines along as part of the inheritance package, Israel is not to do that. Now let's take up another nuance that's going to be helpful to grasp. We often see the biblical term taking as it regards a man with a woman. We read that Reuben took Bilah, or here in Deuteronomy 23.1, that a son is not to take his father's former wife. Take actually has a dual meaning in Bible speak. It means both to have sexual relations and it means to marry. Because in God's eyes... Having sex is marriage. Sex and marriage are inseparable. In the law, a man and a woman are first betrothed. They are legally recognized as belonging to one another. The only thing that remains to make it a completed marriage union is consummation. On earth, in the era of man... Consummation means sexual intercourse. Why is that so important in the present era of mankind? Because it's the beginning of creating a family. It's the first step in having children, and critical to the covenant of Abraham is fruitfulness and and fertility. God expects every Israelite to be active participants in Abraham's covenant by multiplying themselves via God's plan of procreation. So marriage is not only a matter of a desirable and a permitted union between a man and a woman, it's the starting line for every Hebrew's duty before God to participate in the Abrahamic covenant, by being fruitful. So with that understanding, what on the face seems to be a law that has little to do with sex and marriage is now presented to us in verse 2. And the law says that no male whose genitals are destroyed or altered or removed may join the assembly of Israel. Now why is a eunuch or a sterile man being barred? from joining Israel because he's incapable of siring offspring he's incapable of fulfilling God's covenant with Abraham see how that works together? this law of the eunuch or a foreigner who's sterile begins a series of regulations that deals with restrictions on who can and can't join Israel that subject is pretty interesting Because since the time of Abraham, the Lord made it clear that not only is the result of God's plan through Abraham meant in some respects for the benefit of the whole world, but that Gentiles are to be allowed to join Israel as a means of expanding that benefit beyond the Hebrew race. Yet here we begin to meet a whole series of exclusions that that kind of seems to alter that goal. Now, in order to discuss this intelligently, we first have to tackle something that's even more basic. The meaning of the word assembly, or better, assembly of the Lord, generally meaning Israel. Now, Bibles vary greatly, not only among versions, but within the same version as to when to employ the word assembly or congregation. The word that's being translated in Hebrew is kahal. And literally kahal just means gathering. A gathering. But we're going to find the word assembly or the word congregation used for that same word at various points in scriptures. The context of its use is everything. Because it can mean a religious gathering, which is usually how we see the English word congregation. But kahal can also mean a number of other things. Kahal can mean Israel as a whole. Or it can mean the governing body of Israel. It it can indicate a committee drawn together for an official purpose, like the 70 elders that Moses selected to help him. Or it can refer to the tribal leaders. It can mean a group of citizens that's been drawn together to do public public business. Or maybe to make war. Therefore it's highly unlikely that if we use the English term congregation to mean a religious gathering, that that's what we ought to use here in Deuteronomy 23 too. Because when the Torah refers to a gathering of religious significance... It's a group generally made up of Levites and priests who are set apart religious authorities over Israel. Therefore, congregation is not a good choice of words here. Further, when we're trying to discover just, just what this section of Deuteronomy 23 means by Kahal, it's also very unlikely that it can mean all of Israel in general. That is, these restrictions probably cannot be referring to certain people being prevented from joining Israel without exception because all of the other laws that specifically invite foreigners to join. Not only that, but we find that in reality, Israel itself has become enormously genetically diverse. Going back hundreds of years before the time of the conquering of Canaan, one example of this is the absorption of into Israel of the Hivite women and children of Shechem after Levi and and Simeon led the slaughter of all the males of that city in retribution for the rape of their sister Dinah. It's unimaginable that very many living Israelites in Moses' era had genetically pure blood that led back only to Abraham So what is the Hebrew term, kahal, getting at in this context, and why can certain people not be a part of it? Cannot be a part of the kahal. Okay, probably the best term to translate it in the current usage is assembly, and assembly should take it, be taken to mean the broadest possible governing body of Israel. In the sense of all who are citizens. In full standing, given all the rights belonging to citizens. In Israel, there were many exceptions in various social groups that had varying degrees of privilege and participation in Israeli society. For instance, there was what we might call resident aliens. The Hebrew term was nohri. Nohri were not allowed to be part of the assembly, the kahal. A nohri is a foreigner who lives near Israel, inside Israelite territory, under friendly terms, but they're not an official member of Israel and they have no intention of becoming a citizen. The Nohri have elected to follow certain of the Torah laws as God requires of resident aliens, but they're not worshippers of God. And therefore what they can do in Israel is very limited. Then there is a gear this is a kind of foreigner who does live among Israel. They do worship the God of Israel. They obey the Torah laws of the God of Israel. But they're not full-fledged citizens because they've not taken that final step of circumcision. A gear cannot be part of the assembly, the kahal. A no cree could never be allowed to own land in Israel. A gear could own land under certain circumstances. On the other hand, a native born Israelite was a full- blown citizen who could own land. He could be in the mer- in the military he could marry a Hebrew girl he could sacrifice at the at the tabernacle all that see it was this class of person that was included in the assembly, therefore, to put it in modern immigration terms. To say one is eligible to become a member of the Kahal Adonai, the Assembly of the Lord, the Assembly of Israel, it meant that they had potentially, at least, the qualifications for full citizenship. If you're fortunate enough to to get a green card to be in America, you have all the rights under our laws, but you may not act as a member of one of the broadest parts of the governing body of America. Full-fledged citizens. Those who vote for government representatives, enter the military, serve as judges and lawyers, get elected. So, as a loose analogy, just as there is a difference between a person who is welcome to come to America and participate to a degree in our society versus an American citizen who can participate at every level so there is a difference in this law of Deuteronomy between a foreigner who could participate in Israeli society to a degree versus a citizen who could participate completely. So, why do we go through all that? A foreign eunuch possibly even a sterile male foreigner cannot ever become a citizen of Israel. A person, at least back then, became a eunuch for a variety of reasons. Sometimes it was the result of punishment, sadly. Other times, pagan religious sects that worshipped female deities, goddesses, required emasculation of their priests. There were periods of time when voluntary castration was practiced as part of a religious ceremony, if you can imagine. And yet at other times, government officials were castrated and made part of a special group called Soros. Now it's not clear whether being a eunuch for any reason was cause for exclusion from Israel, or only in cases where maybe it was a, a punishment. This probably didn't include males born with, with, with uh, genital defects or maybe there was a the result of disease or injury. More than likely, intention was at the center of this exclusion. Now, I know this may be confusing, but probably the simplest way to see it is that foreign men who were emasculated as a result of their paganism were excluded. They could never join Israel. Now, let me peel this onion back one more layer. The problem with eunuchs is centered on their reproductive organs, or the lack thereof. And the requirement for citizenship into Israel as a foreigner has an awful lot to do with those organs because a male must be circumcised to be considered a full-fledged member of Israel and, generally speaking, must be capable of siring children. A eunuch has mutilated his sexual organs such as no longer suitable, In some cases not even available for circumcision. Now we can scoff at this idea of circumcision as a religious symbol, but the Lord takes it deadly serious. And I'd like to give you an example of just how serious of a subject this is, how much it plays into God's plan of redemption and into His order. By means of the covenant, of Abraham, the Lord gave circumcision a spiritual meaning. It included, or rather it indicated inclusion into his kingdom. To use it, circumcision, for any other purpose, therefore, was perverse. Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, used circumcision in an incorrect manner, and they were cursed for it. Let's look at this briefly. Open your Bibles again to Genesis 34. Genesis 34. We're going to read about the first 20 verses or so. Genesis 34. One time Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to visit the local girls and Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the local ruler, saw her, grabbed her, raped her, and humiliated her. But actually he was strongly attracted to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he fell in love with the girl and tried to win her affection. Shechem spoke with his father, Hamor, and said, Get this girl from me. I want her to be my wife. When Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter, his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob restrained himself until they came. Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him, just as Jacob's sons were coming in from the field. And when they heard what had happened, the men were saddened and very angry at the outrage this man had committed against Israel by raping raping Jacob's daughter, something that is simply not done. But Hamor said to them, My son Shechem's heart is set on your daughter. Please give her to him as his wife and intermarry with us. Give your daughters to us. Take our daughters for yourselves. You will live with us. The land will be available to you. You'll live, do business, acquire possessions here. Then Shechem said to her father and brothers, Only accept me. I'll give whatever you tell me. Ask as large of a bride price as you like. I'll pay whatever you tell me. Just let me marry the girl. Well, the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and Hamorah's father deceitfully. Because he had defiled Dinah, their sister. They said to them, we can't do it. Because it would be a disgrace to give our sister to someone who hasn't been circumcised. Only on this condition we will consent, will we consent to what you are asking. That you will become like us by having every male among you get circumcised. Then we'll give our daughters to you and we'll take your daughters for ourselves and we'll live with you and become one people. But if you won't do as we say and get circumcised, we'll take our daughter and go away. What they said seemed fair to Hamor and Shechem, the son of Hamor, and the young man did not put off doing what was asked of him, even though he was the most respected member of his father's family because he so much wanted Jacob's daughter. Let's skip down to twenty-five, twenty-six. On the third day after the circumcision, when they were in pain, two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers took their swords boldly descended on the city and slaughtered all the males they killed Hamor and Shechem with his son with their swords and they took Dinah out of Shechem's house and left <coughs> then the sons of Jacob entered over the dead bodies of those who had been slaughtered and plundered the city in reply prizel for defiling their sister here we see an example of the sacred ritual of circumcision was used as used to join Israel was used for deception. It was used as simply to create an opportunity to commit revenge and murder. Levi and Simeon waited until three days after the circumcision of all Shechem's males when they were physically ill and then they promptly slaughtered them there was a consequence for this action. Open your Bibles again to Genesis. Genesis 49. Genesis 49, page 56, if you have a complete Jewish Bible. We're going to read verses 5-7 through of Genesis 49. Simeon and Levi are brothers, related to By weapons of violence, let me not enter their council. Let my honor not be connected with their people. For in their anger they killed men. At their whim they maimed cattle. Cursed be their anger, for it's been fierce. Their fury, for it's been cruel. I will divide them in Jacob. Scatter them in Israel. On his deathbed, Jacob more or less laid a curse on Simeon and Levi for this horrendous act. And even though on the surface it was because of their murdering, it was really more because of the misuse of the sacred ritual of circumcision that they were cursed. So circumcision is the key in making especially a foreigner a member of Israel. It must happen within the reproductive organ because human fruitfulness is all about reproduction as ordained in the Abrahamic Covenant. Listen to Paul in Romans 2. You don't have to turn there. Just listen to Paul in Romans 2. This is in 2.25-29. through 29. For circumcision is indeed of value if you do what Torah says. But if you are a transgressor of Torah, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the Torah, won't his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? Indeed, the man who is physically uncircumcised but obeys the Torah will stand as a judgment on you who have had a brief milah, circumcision ceremony and have Torah written out, but violated. For the real Jew is not merely Jewish outwardly. outwardly. True circumcision is not only external and physical. On the contrary, the real Jew is one inwardly. And true circumcision is of the heart. It's spiritual, not literal. So that his praise comes not from other people, but from God. Now listen to what he has to say in Colossians 2.9-11 2, 9 through 11 For in Him bodily lives the fullness of all that God is, and in union with Him that you have been made full. He is at the head of every rule and authority. Also it was in union with Him that you were circumcised with a circumcision not done by human hands, but accomplished by stripping away the old nature's control of Over the body. In this circumcision done by Messiah, you were buried along with Him by being immersed. And in union with Him, you were also raised up along with Him by God's faithfulness that worked when He raised Yeshua from the dead. Paul says that even though circumcision was a physical requirement to be part of Israel, It was always a spiritual issue first. And now more than ever with the advent of Yeshua. Gentiles as well as Jews are to have circumcised hearts. And by now it should be abundantly clear that circumcision is the only entry into the assembly of the Lord, Israel. And that circumcision... Illustration is most appropriate for a believer because part of being joined to God's kingdom is our ability and it's the expectation of the Lord that we are fruitful. Of course, it's a spiritual fruitfulness that's most important. But physical fruitfulness is also a good thing. Now watch this. We'll close with this. Simeon and Levi misused circumcision for the purpose of denying the male residents of Shechem from joining Israel. A very perverse thing because circumcision is only for the purpose of including somebody into Israel. That's all it's for. Gentiles, I'm talking to you. When you take your spiritual circumcision of the heart and say you have not become part of Israel, which is the earthly kingdom of God, you are misusing your circumcision. We've read this over and over and over again. I'm going to close with one more scripture. Romans 11, 13 through 22. This is one you all will probably recognize. However, to those of you who are Gentiles, I say this. Since I myself am an emissary to the Gentiles, I make known the importance of my work in the hope that somehow I may provoke some of my own people to jealousy, save some of them. For if their casting Yeshua aside means reconciliation for the world, what will their accepting him mean? It will be life from the dead. Now, if the hala offered his first fruits as holy, so is the whole loaf. And if the roots holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, Gentiles, a wild olive, were grafted in among them and you become equal shares in the rich root of that olive tree, don't boast as if you're better than the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you're not supporting the root. The root's supporting you. So you will say, Branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. True. But so what? They were broken off because of their lack of trust. However, you keep your place only because of your trust. So don't be arrogant. On the contrary, be terrified. Because if God did not spare His natural branches, He won't spare you. Take a good look at God's kindness and His severity. On the one hand, severity towards those who fell off, but on the other hand, God's kindness towards you, provided you maintain yourself in that kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Gentiles, when we deny our grafting into Israel to misuse our spiritual circumcision in the same way as Simeon and Levi misused the purpose of circumcision, when we deny our joining into Israel as the kingdom of God, which again, this is the sole purpose of circumcision, we've misused the spiritual circumcision that Christ has performed upon our hearts by determining, our determining to exclude ourselves from the kahal, from the assembly. We're going to end it here and next week we're going to talk about another class of people who are excluded from Israel. Those who are called mamser. Okay? See you next time.